1: Hello, welcome to the podcast. Our guest this week is Mary Portus, a living legend of the retail world. Mary first found fame as the creative director of Harvey Nichols and went on to become one of the UK's foremost authorities in branding and retail. Her new book, Rebuild, How to Thrive in the Kindness Economy, is an essential guide to building back better post-pandemic. She shared her insights in a How To Academy live stream with Hannah McInnes.
0: You ask this question in the book. I'm going to ask it back to you. I think it's in your second chapter. You say, who is this book written for? So perhaps you could tell us who you had in mind, businesses, buyers or just everybody that you hoped would pick it up and read it.
2: Well, it's a book that affects every one of us, how we live, Um, how we live affects how we buy. Quite simply. And this is for people who are interested and want to live better and choose better from where they buy. And it's also a book for businesses who want to do better and create a better business model that's based on more than just making profit. So it's it's really for anyone who's interested in making the right choices, really.
0: Mm. You start um, at the very beginning of the book after your introduction with what you describe as a hefty dose of mea culpa. Mm -hmm. Um, So perhaps you could tell us a bit about the sort of personal journey that you feel you went on to to where you work, from where you were to now this sort of ambassador essentially for, and we'll come on to understand more about it, the kindness economy.
2: Well, the mea culpa was just simply, um, you know, I have spent my life in retail Mm -hmm. advising businesses how they can sell more and blindly not even thinking about the consequences of that. I mean, I go back to my Harvey Nichols days, whilst it was creative and I worked with young artists and young designers, actually the end goal was always to sell more. And so my mea culpa is, well, you know what? How do you now try and balance that out because, I was in a place of not even knowing that that is what business could do, create businesses that have social progress, that look after the planet and put people at the centre of it. Those people's well-being, whether that's people that work for you or whether that's people that buy from you. And so the mayor culpa is, yeah, I uh, was one that sold a lot of stuff to a lot of people that they probably didn't need and under the, the promise that it will make their life better. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have a big, big issue with well-being at the moment and, and and people, especially in the young generation, especially in fashion, where how they project their image reflects their sense of self and self-esteem. And so my mea culpa has many layers. And so <laughs> uh, this is me trying to say, OK, got it very wrong. Now, that doesn't mean that we won't be buying. That doesn't mean we won't be shopping. That doesn't mean businesses won't be selling. But They should be doing so with purpose at the heart of it and creating institutions, living institutions, whether that's physically, digitally, that give back to the world as much as they take. In fact, probably more. No one's quite near that yet. Some are doing that. But that's the real ideology behind this. And actually, it's more than an ideology. It's what we have to do. Otherwise, we are not going to be here. The planet will keep going. It won't be what we we came into. It will keep going. We won't be here. So that's why I also put people, planet and profit in that order, because also we're the people that can make the change.
0: Yes. So people, planet, profit is what is essentially behind the title of the book, what you call your podcast, what you call the kindness economy, which we're going to explore in detail do you have a copy of your book with you there? I don't know. Yeah. I, oh, good. I, I wondered if you might read um, what you have on page 49, just your list, which is essentially explains what we would go from growth economy okay, uh, and think, to...
2: I think, first of all, I'd have to explain what the growth economy is. So basically, we have to understand the tenets of way business has been done. Yeah. And the way that we've measured business success, the way that we have lauded business success is on one real, real goal. And that's growth. And the role of economists, which are really, you know, very academic accountants, has had brilliant branding in the past 60 years. And we've lost social psychology and we've lost philosophy at the heart of what business should be. Why are we here? What are we doing? How are we serving people? So growth is all that we've seen. And that's all that's been measured. You'll have heard it on business programs or sales are down by this much. They haven't grown. The business hasn't grown. Businesses could be very profitable, could be healthy, could be thriving, giving jobs, giving. That's not measured. None of that's been measured. And if you go back and economists are much better at me than this. But when Kuznets came up with GDP, an economist, it was to measure basically the productivity of countries. And it just became the benchmark for success in everything. We now need to move away from a growth economy to what I'm calling a kindness economy. There's other ways I think people are talking about it, whether it's conscientious capitalism. But what kindness economy is from a growth economy where it's me, me, that how wealthy can I make, how well does my business do, to a me and we. Thinking about the individual, but what the effect of what I'm having on other people. From siloed businesses, to internal and external interconnectedness. It's not just about what you do behind those walls or wherever you are. You are interconnected in a much greater way and the impact of what you do to community. Value for money. How many times have we heard cheap? We're giving democratic fashion to people. It's cheap. No, this should be value and values. You might be able to give well-priced products to people. What are your values as a business? Are you looking after the people in the supply chain? Are you looking after your team? Who's getting abused somewhere? Passive consumers, I might be here all day, I'll just do a few. From passive consumers to people buying consciously and living. Thinking about, I have the line that I said in my TED Talk, every pound you spend is a vote on how you want to live. That is absolutely central to this. And what I'm talking about is reducing impact and adding more to society. It's not just about... And another big, really important point that I have in here, and we, I'm not going to go through the whole This is hard skill versus hard and soft skills. We've seen business where it's about the alpha, the dominant, the bigger, business that can rise with these very hard skills that have been applauded, which are all around data, finance, tech. And actually, we need more soft skills in business. We need empathy, And we need people to understand what's happened to the planet, how we're living and create environments and businesses that connect and are empathetic to the needs of humanity.
0: I'm glad you pause on that one, because there's definitely parallels there with your last book, Work Like a Woman. And Mm -hmm. I'm wondering how in how many ways that leads you then to this concept, because what you're talking about, empathy, a softer approach is often very much associated with a feminine approach, as you say yeah. in the book, a female energy. Yes. So is there in this and behind this a move towards a more female and feminine approach, which doesn't have to be seen. Soft is not a bad thing. Kindness isn't soft. You say it's powerful.
2: It's really powerful. So uh, we can go on into so many areas of this. But over the years, we've created a patriarchy society. We've created business that's around alpha codes. Most men don't even want to buy into this. This isn't just about women. Most men don't want to work this way. And we have a society where we have suppressed the feminine, where we have suppressed the parts that are important that make us human. So if you look at business, the tenets of what business is, is profit, getting to the top. I mean, this is the antithesis when I work work like a woman to The Apprentice. The Apprentice, you watch it, and it's about individualism, elbowing someone out of the way, putting them down, getting to the top. We let this, we saw this, we lauded this in business. And so I looked at that. And for years, I played a part in that. That's how I got to the top. I could do that really well. But I lost who I was. I lost my instinct. I lost my creativity. And I, lo- I had to play the game of what I thought I needed to be. Businesses have been doing the same. And we've lost the souls at the centre of it. We've seen so many businesses crumbling over the past five years. And everybody thinks it's because, oh, you know what? We're going online, we're buying online. No, those were the old codes that they were working to. Of course, the digital's changed the world. Of course, that'd be crazy for me to say that that's not the only reason. So when I talk about feminine skills, these were the things that were normally put into the HR department. Go and sit down and have a cup of tea. They're the women making the teas and the coffees, sorting out the meetings. Forget it. What I'm talking about here is compassion. What I'm talking about is within business, how you run it, how you relate to each other. It's about collaboration. Sometimes vulnerability saying, I don't get that. I don't understand that. Can we try it this way? And feeling that you have a voice. Sometimes failing. The way that we would if our child failed, we pick that up and go, it's okay. It's okay. We don't do that in business. And all those skills were never put into the heart of business or the boardrooms or the outward-facing role of business. That, I believe, is what is going to save us. And we need to bring back the power of the feminine unashamedly. Unashamedly bring it into work because it's what's going to get us out of this bloody mess.
0: When you say... um it was never there. One of the things that I was thinking, reading the book was, it was perhaps once there, this, this, what you're calling for is almost a resurgence of something sort of that's now historic. I mean, you mentioned Quaker businesses, for example. So was there a time where things were built more around community and compassion in the way you advocate? It just went awry? Yes, it went awry. We got lost in it. So you look back at
2: some of the big industries that did that, where they built Clark Shoes, uh, Fry's Chocolate, the Quaker businesses, and they built communities. They looked after the staff. They looked after their social welfare, the families. I mean, Clark Shoes told me once that they used to close the pub on payday so the men didn't go down the pub with their money. They went back to the women with it. This was a business that really cared about the social implications of their business on family and knew that those men were coming to work because someone was ironing their shirts, someone was sorting out the meal, someone was looking after the kids. That doesn't come into how you equate economics of success today. None of that comes in. And we all saw that experiment in Iceland when all the women went on strike and they ran out of sausages in the shops because all the men were suddenly having to cook the meals and they had no idea what they were going to be bloody well doing. Now, we're not in a society, and I don't want any man sitting there going, oh, shut up, this is some liberal lefty rant. It's not. It's a truth. Most men would like to work in a much kinder way, and most men would want to be empathetic. we sold them a shit show of how work should be, and it shouldn't. And what I have seen by going on this journey with the kindness economy, going, what if we did it that way? What if we actually did it this way and i've met businesses that have been doing it making money creating jobs creating social progress and actually shown that this is the new way forward
0: mm. uh, yeah perhaps you could tell us about there are many examples in the book but one of the things that you describe a lot and a word that comes up again and again central to this idea of a kindness economy is interconnectedness i wonder if you could perhaps expand a little bit on that idea of interconnectedness with the example of some of the companies you, you or the people that you speak to who are starting to use that in practice?
2: Well, the thing about interconnectedness, it's like the butterfly that flaps its wing. We all know that, that analogy and that, well, I don't know whether it's a philosopher's story, but what we do within business has an effect for where we get stuff made, the, the effect of what that means to society. All right, I'll tell you on interconnectedness. When we let the planning laws, in the UK mean that big supermarkets could just build out of town because it was cheaper and build huge, huge supermarkets, 80,000 square feet, 100,000 square feet, start off selling food, then they go into fashion, then they go into beauty, they go to everything. What happened was it displaced, not just that, but it displaced the social infrastructure of the high street. So the interconnectedness was that knock-on effect, what that did to communities, what that did to elder generation, mothers who wanted to run out and buy something, all of that got displaced. And we let it go. That's an interconnectedness. Now, if you were someone in policy and government and you're looking and going, okay, let's look at the planning laws here, you should be taking into consideration the knock-on interconnected effect of what that decision makes on people, communities, and societies. And we're seeing, I spoke to the owner of Lush, he he even chooses where he gets his salt from because of the work that it gives to the people who are mining that salt, but also the type of salt that he bought, I put the example in the uh, the book, was not the type of salt that was helping birds develop and and nest in this area. So they changed it. The knock-on effect was a little bit more, Part of that they passed on by pulling back in other areas of their business, but knowing the effect of their choices is having on communities the other side of the world. We lost all that. You know, when, when you hear these brands going, I didn't know the factories were doing, it. I didn't know they were letting those workers, you go, that isn't being very interconnected. How can you be the face at the front of a business where you're getting stuff produced and you don't know how? those teams of people are being treated.
0: I mean, it's very similar to the idea also, you you mentioned community there a lot in your answer, interconnectedness, community. All of these um, have sort of come into sharp focus in this last year or so. I mean, it's every time, now can't say a year, I can almost, I don't know, it's been so long. Long Longer, isn't it now? Much longer than a year, a year and a half. But How then do you feel like this sense of a community? I know that you've been thinking about that much more sort of intertwined with what the pandemic has done in terms of bringing people together as a community, not just literally on the street on your doorstep, but also you see quite a lot of positives into this, you know, the the online space, digital communities as a place to find your tribe. So That that can be a positive in, in all ways.
2: Look, you know, the thing is, we're, we're neurobiologically wired to connect, we're humans. That that's simply it. And yes, when I talk about community, it can be it can be that social interaction from bumping onto someone in the street. It can be actually eventually going out and sitting in a theatre and just actually smelling the stage and the place. It's connection. It's connection. Now This has been done wonderfully online because we've realized how far we can reach, and I think that's been an incredible upside where you are able to connect to people globally and create a following of like minded people. And that like mindedness is at the heart of what community is, it doesn't matter where it is, but we need that. And by that, I mean we can no longer as businesses think of ourselves as business and consumers. When you just judge me as a consumer, you judge me by what I buy, not who I am, how I emotionally connect, what my interests are. And what I've seen through and what some great brands that have done this digitally and physically is they are setting their values and people are buying into them rather than from them. And they're creating communities of followers rather than just passive consumers but you know community has it's a social web of security for us wherever it is and we can't underestimate that whether it's in the office you know the same applies how can we leave people just working totally from home and not think of the social and mental well-being of those people bringing them into a space whether that's one day a week, two days, I think, whatever, that is understanding your community and having a deeper, more sensitive connection to it. That's what we need to get to, whatever part of business that we're doing is we need to, and some are doing it so beautiful. I saw small things like the co-op has got badges now, and they knock on the door saying, I've got time to talk, realizing the loneliness that we are seeing in this country. And it's not from just an ageing population. It's the highest it's ever been between 16 and 24 year olds. So connection, community, that has to be the glue, the glue at the heart and seamlessly through business.
0: Coming back to Covid, which obviously you know is on people's minds when they hear you talking about those sorts of things, working from home, these are all things that this year have become Sort of exacerbated in a, in a sense, we've become closer to communities, but we've also been isolated in our homes. There is un, undeniable sort of devastation from what we've lived through. But all the way through the book, there's a, a, a great positivity and a sort of swell of action that you feel comes from if we treat it right this time. You say we're living through an age of enlightenment and an era of hope, and that um, the COVID conscience has essentially acted as a catalyst. So so how how does that, how do we grasp that, you know, the positive. That's that that? So central. I think
2: we've seen this bigger shift. This is this is seismic what's happened to us in our lifetime. You know, we, we all thought we wouldn't get away, there'd be a war or something, you know, what other generations had. This has made us rethink how we live on so many levels. And it's had, as you say, quite a devastating Effect on us. The COVID conscious I talk about is this has just sped up what was already happening. Now, there was a brilliant philosopher called Gershom Scholem, and he called them the plastic hours. When something so big happens in the world, you have time to make change happen. Really significant. And if you act then, change really does happen. And he talked about that after the um, Holocaust. You can't go back on that. So what are our learnings through this? Because they have been elevated. And I think we have learned that there's stuff we just don't need in life and the stuff that we do. And the stuff that we do need is the more humane stuff and not the stuff that surrounds us or we put into our lives to make us feel good. So this is the time to make change. We know the planet's dying, we know it. We've just sort of ignored it for so long. We've heard messages, you know, whether it was Attenborough starting it, Greta Thunberg coming to the streets, we've seen this constantly coming to us. And now we know we cannot go back to where we were. So my thing is, We can all do our individual part of this. We can choose how we spend. We can choose how we recycle. We can choose not to stagger out of the supermarket with 10 plastic bags. We can choose not to buy bottled water. But I believe big, big change has to come from industry and business. I don't think it's going to come from politicians. They're not making policy change anywhere near quick enough. Don't have much hope with that. So it's going to come from two places, from business and from the people. People knowing we want to change because I don't want to hand this world over to my children. I want to hand something that's done better over and that actually we can all do our part to make that change.
0: So when people hear that, as you, as you can imagine, there is a sense of, as an individual, we'll come back to businesses again, but as individuals, as buyers or consumers, I'm sure there are people listening who run businesses, I hope so. But Either way, as individuals, it's so easy to feel a real sense of helplessness in the face of these enormous problems. When you talk about the planet, climate change, Mm. um, you know, it's so easy to feel helpless and that each individual action won't make a difference, sort of to, to give up in that sense. But you say, you know, time and again in the book, and there's a chapter dedicated to it, you know, we're not passive, we have agency. We shouldn't be daunted. We should be empowered. Each individual does have sort of agency to change things. Perhaps you could develop on that as the questions that we ask ourselves when we're buying. Well, it's the
2: questions we ask ourselves. And sometimes we turn a blind eye because it's too difficult. Don't beat yourself up on that shit. You know what? Just think, do I want to be on this journey? Do I want to do this? And I think that's, a. I always, I, I put in the line, start where you are. Pema Children wrote that. You know, everybody thinks, You know, if I want to be a better person, I've got to learn to meditate. I've got to learn to do this. Just start where you are and just be aware that this is something I do want to do. I'm going to start with businesses, first of all. First of all, I believe there is huge hope. We are seeing more creativity in this time than we have seen in business in a long time. And it's coming from often the small businesses are doing this because the big ones are like titanics. They can't quite move themselves fast enough and you're getting some nimble little upstarts. We've never seen so many entrepreneurs. We've also never seen so many fail, but don't let that hold you back. From a personal point of view, and there's two things I would say to businesses as well. On one hand, you're doing what I quote the, uh, the Senator John, I can't even remember his sermon, but he talked about in a great speech, on one hand, there's this dying culture, and we're hospice workers on that, because you're not going to throw off everything you do in your business at the moment or the way we live. This, so you're, at one point, you know this dying culture is going, so we're, we're sort of looking after it and knowing it's not going to be the future. And on the other side, we're midwives, rebirthing you know, and bringing in this new. So you, you, these are two roles that we're kind of surfing at the same time. And if you've got a business, you still want to make money and you can't just go, right, I'm all going to do this tomorrow. and collect. You can't. So how do you slowly take the steps? It's the same as an individual. What do we start doing? How do we start thinking about the way we're consuming? How do we make our choices? Yes, we know we can stick another one on Amazon. Or could we possibly support... Or could we look at a small business we support from? Or could we recycle those clothes that we've been wearing? Or could we actually, you know, buy some secondhand clothes and not spend X amount in Zara with three big carrier bags we come out with? How about we only buy X amount? And how about when we buy that that outfit, we actually give one away? You you can start, just start there. You can ask yourself, because everybody's life is different. What can I make? And sometimes it is more effort. Sometimes it is. But, you know, we're all these leaves on trees. We are not on our own. And together, the power of us all together making those changes is how change really, truly does happen.
0: I mean, it's interesting there you mentioned examples like buying less, which, of course, is easier. But one of the things that always comes to me when having conversations about the importance of buying with compassion and buying sustainably and for businesses to act with compassion and be sustainable is that society isn't set up to make that the option for people who are, money and time pressed so if you don't have much money and you don't have much time it's actually a luxury to often think about buying with compassion buying local buying sustainable that's really still the sort of realm of the privilege how do we get past that
2: i'm not sure it is the realm of the privilege because i talk about the double values what the privilege is we well first of all we need the, the businesses to deliver to us, to the lives that we live, but with compassion and with thinking about not, not just sustainability, sustainability is a big goal to come down, but decency and compassion. So again, not every brand, and certainly in the fashion industry, there are very, very, very few sustainable brands. So that one is not going to be answered for a long time. That needs a whole reworking on how we're even creating fabrics. I was talking to some of the great, mines worldwide. You know, we're actually believing that the future of fabric production is going to be on the farms. We'll be making fabric from beetroot pulp or, you know, mushroom whatever. That's a long way to go, right? Of course, we've got to understand convenience. Of course, we've got to understand speed. But if we have governments, let's just take how we shop locally. If we're looking at, which some governments are worldwide, on how to create 15-minute cities where everything you need for your life is within a walking distance or cycling within 15 minutes. That's saying, as a government, I understand the needs of this planet and the needs of people. And we're going to create those spaces together. We've had a free market where that hasn't happened. Of course, we're going to have times where I've just ordered something from Amazon. I left my bloody earpods you know, batteries in the back of a cab. There used to be a day when you got a ticket from the cab and you knew you were able to get a hold of him and he wrote his name on it or whatever. And you're like, oh my God, I can get a hold of that cab. But I've gone off and I haven't got any earphones. I've got to have Of course, I'm going to go to Amazon on that. I'm not going to go, well, I'm going to wait five days and go down to a like or high street. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is be aware of our choices and we can put pressure on businesses to deliver to us, but be compassionate. There's one company that I've started buying from called Bother. I don't know if you've heard of it. And it does all the stuff you don't want to buy. your washing powder, the dog food, all that stuff that's deeply boring. And they will expand that. They'll expand it. But they, A, they give it a discount. So they always come in with a, a deal. And for everything you buy, they plant a tree. My God, isn't that nice? Now, the stuff's still plastic. It's not fully sustainable. But they will start to get there. So me as an individual started thinking at least I'm doing something a little bit here. So that's why I talk it's got to come from people and it's got to come from business and if we had intelligent government we'd be doing the 15 minute cities as well and what we also saw though don't let's not forget this independence and small businesses can compete on price. During lockdown we were seeing local fruit and veg shops that were delivering to the doorsteps of people they suddenly got canny and thought god i've got to get digitized they created subscription models we're seeing the middleman being cut out we're seeing local farmers delivering we didn't have that before so what this has done is opened up a new economy we've just got to search it out more if we have the time and when we do have the time but you're quite right if i'm a mother of three working full-time I haven't got that pleasure to be moseying around locally and perusing. So here we go. Let's create the business models that do that for us, but are actually looking after us as well and our bastards. Why do we have to buy from bastards?
0: Well, one of the main things that really um, I found very uplifting reading the book, every time I questioned it, you provided evidence to sort of dismiss my, my doubt, right. was the idea of how much change there is in the air, you know, COVID or no COVID. And the evidence you have to back up that people are really genuinely looking for something different, you know, in terms of where they buy, what they buy and, and how much. I mean, you say we're reaching a time of, I think, status sentience. Is that is that what you call yeah. it? People yeah. are genuinely becoming less interested in stuff. I
2: am. Um, I'll talk you. about. so when I started out and I was, you know, largely in my Harvey Nichols nickel it's all status symbols. You know, if I've got this, what designers, what designers have you got? You know, people wore it with the bling factor going on majorly, majorly. Brands just sticking logos on selling truckloads. Status symbols reflected where you would got to. Then that kind of moved when it became a bit gauche and you saw some, you know, different sort of celebrities who maybe weren't on the A-list wearing head-to-toe Burberry. <laughs> it, and, and so these brands tried to become more what I called then about status stories. It was where you discovered stuff. It was actually the niche was the better. We're now moving into status sentience where we've realized where it's about respect and care. Am I showing respect and care in my choices? Am I, as a brand, creating a brand that has respect and care at the heart of it? Respect and care for my people, respect and care for the people that buy into me, respect and care for the planet. This is a shift. So it would be rather gauche if you came and saw me staggering out with all these carrier bags of clothes, you know, every label possible. You'd think, that doesn't feel very sentient to me. That doesn't feel very sexy. That doesn't feel very modern. So whether we like this or not, it's happening. It's a cultural shift. Mm -hmm. And the businesses that will understand that and are going in for the long term are going to be the winners in the end. I was speaking even today to Iceland, you know, and the guys there are doing supermarket extraordinary stuff. Mm-hmm. How do you balance frozen food value with decent values? And he said, I mean it for the long term. I'm not just feeding short term. You know, actually, when you hear these all the time, when we used to hear Marks and Spencers going out and giving out their, their results, it was because they had to pay all the people who had a part of Marks and Spencers. And when you've got a brand where you are in control of it and you can say, I'm in this for the long term, then you can start to make changes happen and not just short
0: term. It's interesting you mentioned Iceland because I think uh, Richard Walker is really a bit of a hero where all of these things it's are been
2: incredible. It's him today, I was chatting with, I was on really incredible. And and when he started this, you know, and he said about Palmer re- realizing the implications of Palmer, he set out to take palm oil out of all their products. He has something like 780 products and he's got through, I think, something like over 500 he's done. And then Panorama went under or some BBC and and found 15 products that had palm oil. And it's like, let's point the finger. Shame, shame, shame. Then we, we don't shame the ones who are hiding behind the wall who aren't doing anything. And you know, the guy gets up again, he gets knocked down and he gets up again. And that will be a brand that's not about shareholder interests and short term profits, it's going to be long term. Mm-hmm. And I would be, you know, anyone sitting listening to this, whether advising businesses, whatever, they need to get on this. This is going to be the future.
0: Yeah. And just to come back very quickly to that idea of things changing, I was really struck by the example you give of actually idols. And how they change, because it, you know, it really is a, it shows how that's happening in the sense that, for example, David Beckham, moved to, you move know, to now the idol of kindness and sort of compassion and doing things for society personified, you know Marcus Rashford.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I don't want to knock David Beckham. I'm sure he's a very sweet guy underneath, <laughs> a decent guy. And uh, his wife gave me all the kids clothes for my charity shops to sell. So, you know, but it was, an, it was a metaphor. And I, I was watching the football. And I've got a 26-year-old son, and I've got a nine-year-old son. And I have gone through all these footballs, Euros, World Cups, and gone, oh, my God, please, England, please win. I can't bear it. With sons, your literal stomach's going, ah, ah, ah. I watch them all. We get the flags out, and we watch the match. And I remember my elder son, Milo, watching. And I think it was back in 2006. I can't remember. And there was Beckham with his tats and his quiff every rock brand possible being advertised with every, and it was about, the talk at that time was about his stud diamond earrings. And we were sold that. We were sold. He was was the icon of, if you create wealth, you can have fame, you can have power. That's it, Fame, fame, power, and wealth. Today, we're watching again, you've got Gareth Southgate hugging these young men on a field, on a pitch, when they're giving their monies to the NHS, they're still making money. They're still making money. This is the double values, but these new values have come in. They're still making ridiculous sums of money, but they're giving their their money to the NHS. You've got Marcus Rashford fighting on the, the kids' meals. You've got Southgate talking empathy, saying, this was me, these were my choices. I take this on. Showing vulnerability, collaboration, connection. It was beautiful, and if we won, We won 10-0 on those values. England won. England won. Still think the Italians were a bit rough and dirty playing.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the questions that you ask everybody on the podcast is, do you really think we can achieve this? And where do you think we can be by 2030? So I turn that question to you.
2: I I think we will achieve it. I have every hope. And I think... Look, I, have, I won't set on air, but there's, there's, two, there's two tribes in, in this. There's the people who don't give them monkeys or a shit, and there's people who do give a shit. And the give a shits are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. There'll always be someone trying to make a quick buck. There'll always be someone and some business greenwashing, talking. That happens. You know, we've seen it in politics, and then you get a new breath coming in, and then in comes another one. I genuinely believe this is it's going to have to happen there'll be policy eventually that will come in but the pressure will come from people wanting to live better and seeing what better means I have every hope our future even if you talk about the industry that I'm in advising retail brands I think we'll see less but we'll see better we don't need as much stuff everyone goes oh isn't it terrible when you see these brands going down no 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 it's over their time has been, their time has been. This is opening up a completely fresh energy. And we're seeing a beautiful generation of Generation Zs and some of the millennials who are going, all those promises that you had, that you had when you grew up, that this is what you need, this is how you behave, this is the house you're going to get, this is what marriage means. They ain't there. So actually, we are going to live and actually care for ourselves and our planet in a different way because that's all we've got. And I have every hope on this. And there'll be naysayers and there'll be people that knock us, but you have to keep going back out on it because that's how change happens.
0: So that's why you you end with what you call your rallying cry. Would it be fair to say your main message that you would love people to take away is to put, as you say, the planet and humanity at the heart of everything we do. Those two are the central keys to this.
2: You know, In life, when you, and I I can only just make the analogy in business, and I'm thinking of it, when you have children or family, your love for them is so pure, it really is so pure, that you would do anything to make them have a decent life or happy, whether it's your mother, whether it's a grandparent, whether it's your children. Why do we let that go when it comes to business? Why do we stop being that? These are real truths here that are happening. We've got a planet that's dying, we've got the highest rate of obesity, we've got through fast food and cheap food that came in, and we keep getting told it's democratic, people can afford cheap stuff. What about they can afford cheap stuff that's also good for them? Because we can do that. It might mean that you're not bashing out the profits at the size you were, but you'll still have a healthy thriving business. Take it, that's the truth. And we can demand this. We can demand businesses and ourselves to be kinder, just kinder. And being kinder is the more difficult choice. It's not a soft skill. It's very difficult to love. It's not the easiest thing to do, but that's what we need to do.
0: So I'm going to, um, sort of, I say reluctantly, because there's so many more things I could ask, um, and, and, but I'm going to hand over to audience questions. There's a question here um, from Donald Who says you refer to the soft skills, which I totally understand as a factor contributing to a much wider kindness economy and a move towards a compassionate culture? From a gender point of view, how do you think we can best encourage organisations to hone in, bring out those skills in their male workforce? It's a very good question. No, it's an
2: excellent one because I well, uh, Donald, hello, and I. When I did my book work like a woman, I went up to the Edinburgh Festival. God, it was! I walked out onto the stage and it was packed, and I just saw a lot of men as well. I'm like, "Oh God, you know, here we go." And my daughter said to me, "Mama, I'm not sure you should write call it work like a woman," and she said, "You're going to alienate all those men." I said, "But actually, what I mean by work like a woman, I want to work like me as a woman. That's what I meant. I want to connect with my inner sensitivity." And I believe that inner sensitivity is in lots of men, but we've taken it away from them. And I remember this guy coming up to get these books signed and he ran a building company and he had 10 books in each hand. And he said, I'm gonna show this. I'm gonna bring this into my business. He said, and I'm gonna cover the books and not show them the title. (laughs) He, He handed them and he wrote an email to me afterwards because it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that it's called work like a woman. Actually, most men want to be freed from this. So I think you need to create a culture within business that shows that men can be vulnerable and open. I interviewed a great guy from MediaCom who headed up one of the best media businesses, and he told me he suffered with depression. So the first thing he did is he put up a note on the wall and said, I suffer with depression, and I've combated it as much as I can. If anyone else wants to talk to me about how they feel in the workplace, come to me and then it just grew and what he did was then had what they call it I can't remember the word for it but like your buddy your work buddy that you could go to and talk about any issue and not feel ashamed and not feel that you had to be this alpha person so it comes from a cultural philosophy that you need to have in the business invariably Donald it comes from the top but you know what you can also create your own little micro teams of people that can make change and push it up from the bottom as well.
0: Another question from Lauren is, I see people from the corporate sector moving over to the charitable not for profit sector, but it seems harder to go the other way. How can we encourage corporates to employ staff with this alternative experience rather than looking for what they know? So with this alternative experience and with the soft skills rather than looking for what they know?
2: Well, I think, you know, it, of course, that's going to take a long while. But it's, it's happening, is all I can say, is that we're starting to see this. And let me tell you, when I did my book, I got called into some big banking businesses where literally I thought, oh, please don't put me out on that stage. I think I was only female in some, some instances. And they are hungry for this. So I would be going in to any interviews and writing that within. Coming from your heart and coming from your truth and saying, this is what I believe I can bring into your business because this is what I believe business needs in the future. Don't shy away from it and try to play the role that you think they want. You believe that. You can go into the corporate world. The corporate world needs you and bring those skills into it. You'll see that starting to soften and pull the walls down. Believe me, I've, I've talked to some seriously big businesses on this. They are looking for ways to do this. Don't play their game. Play yours.
0: You, you say big businesses, and it's really mm. interesting. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier in our discussion that it's perhaps something you see more, this move towards you know kindness and a different emph- emphasis on a, away from growth and profit. But there are big businesses doing this too, aren't there? I mean, you talk about Unilever in the book, which yeah. is a staggering example. Yeah, Unilever, massive, massive. And I heard him
2: talking on the radio, the chief executive, I was like, oh my God, sorry, who is this? You know, and it was CEO, talking about how he wanted diversity, how he was going to create sustainability. Long journey, we're not 100% getting it right. And I met with them and they are putting this at the heart of their businesses. Some of the big banks are doing this. They're gonna have to. People are also, and it's happened during COVID, so many people are going, I don't want to go back to that shit. I don't want to go back to that. That's I've realized that my well-being and my health is absolutely central to this. I'm talking to restaurant businesses, chains and owners who are having to work around people now. Hallelujah! Because people are just going, I don't want this. I don't want to be paid minimum wages. I don't want to be treated that way anymore. And actually changing the way that they're working, doing um, bits of jobs here and there, rather than having to be tied into a business that doesn't put their needs equally with those of the business. So, I think we've got great hope in this change happening. But again, if we put up with it, we won't make the change happen. Now, that's easy said for me sitting here as a business owner and made my money. But you have a voice. Keep that voice. Keep that truth and use it because it will come through.
0: Um, Steve asks, with councils going bankrupt and politicians following the money, how do you mobilise the kindness economy on a local level?
2: Oh, I think that's where the answer is. On a local level, I did um, Ed Miliband's podcast the other day, and uh, I bumped into him in the street. I and mean, sounds like very lovely, I do. And um, I believe the change is going to come. I believe that that's even what the Labour Party should be doing. When you look at the worst affected areas, often they are Labour councils. I believe it's got to come from local. Now it will need a really clear strategy. A strategy, and I'm seeing it in some of the areas that we've looked at, look at the Preston example, where they actually decided that they were only going to, the council or the businesses, only going to use local, so that they had an ecosystem of local that created what was needed for that community and the people of Preston. There's a book out that you should read. It. I'm not going to be very good at explaining all the details because I am a bit of a skim reader. But that at the heart of it was local making change. I genuinely believe that's going to come from it. And that's having a vision for the people and the communities of those and then empowering the different infrastructures and businesses and networks and stakeholders of that local area to create what's needed. So even if you t- go into my area, in the 90s you had these clone towns, boring as batshit. Every town you turned up, same shops one after the other. Internet comes in, so all of them then close down those tertiary and secondary sites. You get shops, that are, you know, deserted. They're not got an allegiance to those towns. They're just going where the money is. And the money suddenly was on the internet as the second door and the most important one. So local economies, can look at the needs, the different needs, and then create those with the stakeholders who are within that local economy. So it's no longer councils working on their own. They have to work with the local and embedded. And again, read the Preston example. There's others that are being done. Longer, slower, but vital.
0: More questions for you. Hi, Mary. Do you, this is Dee. Do you still champion the charity shop sector? And how important an influence do you think they have as part of this culture change?
2: Of course I do. I have 26 Mary's living and giving shops to save the children. We've raised 30 million. Ten, 12 years ago I set those up. And when charity shops were seen as, you know, where everyone dumped stuff and it was smelly and you've got the average age of the sales assistant, bless them, were, you know, 78 with a sense of duty. Well, we shifted that and changed that. And it's going to get even sexier. I'm surprised we're not seeing... If I'd have been John Lewis, I'd have opened up a whole floor that was just about recycling, upcycling a charity. What a warm, fuzzy feeling that would have given in my heart. Imagine all the young generation that would have gone into that floor and bought from that charity floor and on the way stopped off and had a coffee and maybe with their mum bought something from whatever their fashion collections are or their home. We're seeing short-sightedness in business at the moment. Let's see creativity come to the fore. The charity is going to be a big part of that. And I think upcycling, recycling, we're seeing it in IKEA as well, using that with furniture, how they're bringing bring back your stuff, recycling. It's going to be a big, big movement. And it's going to get, of course it will get commercial. I don't mind if it gets commercial. You know, make money, but make the world a better place.
0: Um, some somebody else, accepting difference is a big part of kindness. Um, And there are lots of areas we could go into this and maybe we'll expand into others. And they were specifically asking how the neurodiverse community can be celebrated more as natural innovators. And we haven't actually talked much about innovation and creativity, which forms a big part of the book. Um, Out of the box thinkers and change makers right now, they're largely misunderstood um, and discriminated against.
2: You know what? Again, I'll talk with you. Change makers and the small are often the ones that people just can't understand. Truthfully. Most of the world is risk-averse. That is the truth. And most people settle for what's easy. That is the truth. I interviewed Juliet Davenport, who started Good Energy. She started her own electricity company, Good Energy. Can you imagine that? Going into the world where the biggest brands are owning this, run by old fossils themselves, who have done it this way for so long. And she went in, knowing the plan that was done, we're talking back in 1999 and said, how about if we did it this way? Laughed at, put down. That happens. But true creativity, you keep going on it. And again, through my podcast, the amount of people I've interviewed, the guy from Rafa, 200 people turned him down for any investment. 200. If the idea is right and you keep getting back up there, it will break through. There is no other answer to that. And the small are often... The change makers, the challengers, and the disruptors. Mm.
0: You, you say you talk about creativity. You say that another thing that the pandemic gave rise to was a, a flourish of creativity and original thinking. And perhaps you could expand on that idea that you, the buzzing, blooming life force of creativity is the uh, sorry of life of creativity is the life force to all of this.
2: Yeah, and I think we think creativity is going to be some hipster bloke with a beard in an office charging you a fortune to come up with ideas. It's not. You know, again, creativity is connecting, I believe, with your your source, your energy, and thinking and looking at ideas. They make the most simple ideas. They don't have to be creative in the way that we think we've been sold to us. We all used to get, you know, told "You're, you're the clever one or you're the academic one, you're the creative one because you can paint. No, what I mean by creativity, and I think we did it brilliantly, I was talking about, is thinking in a lateral way sometimes and going, what if we did it that way? And what COVID did was it suppressed us so much. I even think about our mad old city, London, that we live in. The reason so much creativity comes out of here is because we are up against it. We're out there, we're fighting. It's a it's a red city, it's a bit angry. I go to Australia, no offense Australians because there's some great Australian, I love them, but it's like, that. no worries. And everything's just a little bit easier. And this crazy city of ours and this country It's kind of intense and it's dense. And when it's intense and it's dense, you spring back from it. We were in the most intense, dense time now through COVID. And just some people have looked at doing things in a little different way. I wrote about in my book, there's two actors who live around around the corner. Mad as a bag of snakes, brilliant. One's an actor, one works in events. The events business closed down. She wasn't getting any work. They used to rent a little shop below them when, when, you know, they were able to buy in London and it was actually decent, easy money. So they opened up an ice cream parlor. Never done it in their lives. Never bloody done it. It It's freezing cold. We were all queuing outside because it was a bit of joy. This little ice cream parlor had opened up. I I don't know how much money they made because the queues were so long because they were just chatting to everybody and putting so many sprinkles on the top and over-serving. But we loved them. And they've become a part of the community. And I'm telling you, that will be a brand they can now take even bigger. And it was done when the world was going like "Mm, that. They went,
0: what if I did that? I loved that part of the book. Yeah. I, did, I wasn't cold reading it, I was boiling. It was just a few days ago and I was just tra- transporting myself to that queue. Um, I saw her a,
2: few day, a day ago and I said, what are you doing? She said, I'm acting, I'm doing Romeo and Juliet down at the Globe. And I said, well, who's running right the shop? She's all out of work actors. I'm giving this and they're the best ones performing. So she's put out of work actors are in there because out of work actors
0: just know how to connect. And go, hello, welcome in the shop. And everyone's like, it's still joyous um another question at a time when communication has never been more efficient as with good energy it needs a voice to initiate a groundswell of good ethics how would you create a collective identity
2: i'm, I'm, I'm that sounds a bit tangential the collective identity. all i can say is a groundswell that's what i'm trying to do with this mm. movement of the kindness economy you bring people in so when i started talking about it you know two years ago it was a ted talk and uh you know, now I started writing a little newsletter when we were in lockdown, just talking about this from my heart. And it's just grown. It's just grown. And it's just grown. And it became a podcast. Then I got an offer of a book. Then I spoke to businesses and then they share it. And actually, this is how we keep doing it. This is how we keep putting it out into the world by talking about it, by sharing ideas. That's how it's going to happen. And not just closing it down and thinking, oh, that's not gonna work because it's not gonna make a fast buck. If you believe in it, share it, open it up. Just keep talking about the stuff and thinking about the stuff. And there was um, the wonderful Rilke, German uh, poet and philosopher. He talks about, you know, actually start living the questions in your head. How do I create this? The answers won't come to you straight away. But if you keep sitting with that question, what happens is you start to live the answers. It's a bit of a philosophical thought, but it's absolutely so true. How do we make this change happen? I want that to happen. And you sit with the question, and he talks about like like books that are in a library. You're surrounded by them. And even if the answer came to you straight away now, you might not be able to live it. But You'll slowly realize that over time, your actions and
0: the way you speak will be living the answer. I feel like that is seamlessly a very good and positive uh, way to end just as we come to the end of our hour. But it's been fascinating as I thought it would be um, hearing from you. And thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for writing the book. And thank you to everyone very, very much indeed for signing in. Thank you. Thanks, Hannah. Be safe.
1: This week's podcast starred Mary Portis and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by me, and edited by John Daugherty. Alongside our podcasts, films, and live events, How To Academy also hosts interactive courses and masterclasses taught online by leading business practitioners, from the art of selling to entrepreneurship, projecting authority to speaking with confidence. You can find the whole range on our website. And if you book in the first week of September, you can get 20% off with the code Back to School. That's back to school in uppercase, where two is the word, not the number. Until next time, I'm Vas Christodoulou. Thanks for listening.